Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. There's a change happening in the world. More and more people are waking up to an expanded sense of what it means to be human to our interconnection to each other and the planet. At the same time, the chaos level is rising and we're faced with stark choices that force us to look inside ourselves honestly, address our own healing, and put ourselves in service to a better world. It's a remarkable moment. The opportunities are huge. The dangers are real. You're just in time for the evolution if this show resonates with you, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. Please share this episode on social media and with friends at Yoga Class or at the Community Compost site. And leave a rating on iTunes. That really does help us reach more people. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net, N-E-T, for feedback. And you can follow us on Instagram at theevolverpodcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. As you go deeper into your consciousness practice, meditation, kundalini yoga, shamanic plant medicine, or what have you, and things start to click, you realize that the stories you tell yourself shift and dramatically. What used to seem important, or traumatic, or dirty secret behaviors that gave you infinite kicks, no longer have the same charge. And you get your juice from things that hadn't seemed so appealing before, like sitting still with your legs crossed for long periods of time, or just staring at a flower. Soon, you realize that you're situating yourself differently in your relationships, your career, and the aspirations that give you a sense of personal mission. You have the aha moment. You're not the person you thought you were. It turns out that the stories we tell ourselves, that we grow up believing, that seem immutable, rock solid, are actually the product of our mind. They flow like water. As we notice this, we realize that we're responsible for our stories because they can be transformed. And when that happens... When your stories change, you live in a new reality. There are the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that we receive from society. Stories that we tell ourselves communicate things like, Life is endless frustration. I am not deserving. Or, I'm always going to be sick. These can intersect with the stories from society, like, Authority can't be challenged. The rich are deserving. Or, Hordes of violent criminals are storming the border. By flipping the stories we live by, from tales of fear and reaction to positions of compassion and empowerment, you literally reshape the realm of the possible. The right story can get you off your ass and taking action. It can get you to see and respect the divine spark at your center 
that always deserves to be respected and needs space to glow. Storytelling permeates every aspect of what it is to be human. That's why it's so powerful. And when you change your own stories, it has a ripple effect, touching and changing the stories of those who are around you. On today's show, we dive into storytelling with a master. Jessica Blank is a playwright, actor, and director, but she thinks of herself first as a storyteller. That is, a storyteller with a purpose. With her husband and writing partner, Eric Jensen, she wrote the documentary play The Exonerated, which told the true stories of people wrongly convicted on death row. The script came from interviews with former death row inmates telling their own stories. Their other documentary plays include Aftermath and How to Be a Rock Critic about the legendary Lester Bangs. Jessica has also published three young adult novels and co-directed a film of her first one, Almost Home. Jessica has deep insight into how telling the right stories can humanize the faceless, abstract victims of decisions that we make almost unconsciously as a society and shift our perspective in a way that leads to real change. As she says in our discussion, storytelling creates avenues to empathize with people who otherwise seem vastly different from us. At a time when we tend to view the world as if it's some weird video game through a smartphone screen, simply recognizing the humanity of those who seem so distant from our own experience can be a radical act. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, 
cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. Do you love the subway? I don't love the subway. I love, I love I the subway. I appreciate the subway. Okay. I should say I appreciate the subway. I mean, it is, I, it's much better than everybody riding around in cars all the time, for sure, from an environmental standpoint. And it's fairly reliable timing-wise, and it's quick. No, I don't love the delays. Delays, right. yeah. signal delays, you know, yes. that's, sorry, right. no, I have problems with that. I guess that's not uncommon. But there's something about having these tubes uh-huh. Connecting all the spots underground uh-huh. yeah. in the city that allows you to zoop, is this bop, sort bop, of bop, like bop. mechanical mycelium or something. Yeah, and you can move so <laughs> fast. It's like you know one of those those vacuum tube things, like sure. like, like yeah. across the office. But you know, pre-internet days when things actually had to be delivered by right. like you know physical paper. I love that yeah. mnemonic tubes, right? Yeah, I appreciate the efficiency of of the subway and of New York in general, and just sort of this condensed nature of it. LA is very determined by its geography, right? It takes an hour to get everywhere. So it sort of slows everyone and everything down, which is kind of fabulous and a really nice counterbalance and good for me. And also I like to get a lot of things done really quickly clearly, <laughs> all the time. Clearly so. you do because you do <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. So you have another, you're working on yet another documentary play. Yeah. So we're, um, my husband, Eric Jensen, and I are writing partners also. Um, and we are both uh, actors, writers, and directors for film, TV, and theater. So we do a lot of different things. But we started in documentary theater on the writing side. And um, that work is probably the work that I do that sits most at the intersection of like the arts and social change, which is connected to some of my other work as a consultant, um, working around the power of story. And we are, yes, working on a new documentary play um, that should be up off-Broadway soon. It's a commission for the public theater that we've been working on for a couple of years. It's based on interviews that we did with survivors and surviving family members of minors who were killed in the Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia in 2010. And um, the play is, it's a documentary play, so it is based on interviews that we conducted. What documentary theater is, is we we go out and record audio interviews and then transcribe them and then um, work to shape those interviews or material from those interviews into a play. So we're doing a lot, like if writing a conventional play is like painting a painting on a blank canvas, this kind of work is like carving a statue out of marble, right? So we're working with this huge amount of raw material, but creating a dramatic structure out of it, right? All these texts that you have from the interviews that you've transcribed, that you're then turning into a performance. Yeah, that we're turning into a play. Right, and the first play that you did like this was The Exonerated, which was then made a movie. Yes. 
and has been, I saw somewhere, 250 productions around the Something country. like that. It had a very, very long life. It really took both of us by surprise. Um, we were... I. I had just moved to New York. I was here going to acting school, and I, I've always been a very politically oriented person and a very engaged person, and um, I was, I've was i also always been a theater geek, and I was very, very drawn to theater and very, very drawn to the arts, and I knew I wanted to be an actor, and I knew I wanted to go to theater school, but also a big part of me felt like I should be off doing relief work somewhere, right? Like some part of me felt like it was a cop-out to go into the arts and that there was so much suffering in the world and so much injustice in the world. And I really felt drawn to do what I could to help heal that. And Because you thought that the arts really don't make much difference. Well, I wasn't sure, right? Uh-huh. Like there was a part of me that really hoped that it was possible to create social change through the arts and that it was possible to figure out a way to make positive change happen through theater in particular, because that's my art form, but through the arts in general. But then there was another part of me that sort of worried or wondered whether that was a kind of a Pollyanna pipe dream. You know, I grew up upper middle class, white, hippie, right? Like, it's like this hippie idea of like, oh, I'll change the world through my art. And like, I don't want to be that girl, right? But there was a time where that actually did happen. Yes, and it is possible. And we know the history, like, you know, you can go back to like the 1930s, labor, very, you know, waiting for lefty kind of theater where people would get really engaged after the show and want to be, participate in the union movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then there was a lot of that, you know, folk singing, uh, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger kind of worlds happening alongside of that. Then in the 60s, you had the living theater yep, where you had, you know, people coming to the theater and having these massive kind of brain orgasm, <laughs> nuclear explosion things happen, and they would leave the the theater following the cast out into the street in demonstrations against the Vietnam War. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I had grown up with a lot of those artists as like feeling like those were my models and that was my lineage. You knew those guys and growing up? Not personally, but I knew their work. I mean, I studied the living theater in college, right? And, and I was aware of you know, I, I've been aware of and sort of a nerd about countercultural arts traditions and American countercultural arts lineages going back a really long time. But I think when I showed up here, I was like in the year 2000, right, with the cultural conditions as they are. Is is there a way to really do this in a way that's not just abstract and not just sort of like hippie stuff, right? Um, because it's not that moment anymore, right? Like that ground got broken in the 60s already and the 70s, and so now what, right? And then it felt played. I mean, yeah. I, I actually knew a lot of those people through my family growing up. I mean, I you know literally uh-huh. like, I went to a lot of living theater productions awesome. at one point in my life and uh, got to know those guys pretty well. And you really did feel that at a certain point, it lost its power. It no longer spoke with the same kind of revolutionary kind of edge. Right, because the moment was different. The moment was right? gone. The and moment. The, art, the arts have to evolve to address the moment that we're in. And I think, you know, so I, I had a lot of questions about that when I first started out in the city. And I I really, you know, I felt very torn actually about coming here and going to acting school. But at the same time, like in my heart, I knew it was what I really wanted to do. And I, so I was like, look, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to see if I can figure out some way to make positive social change with my art. I don't know how to do it 
in a way that's actually effective and actually tangible and practical and not just sort of like an abstract cultural idea, but that really affects people's lives. But I'm going to try. And so I did my partway through my first year in acting school here. I met my husband who had been in the city for 10 years working as an actor. And I brought him on um, a date to a death penalty conference. (laughs) That's so romantic. (laughs) He likes to say that it was early enough in our relationship that he would say, still say yes to anything I asked him to do. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So tell me, this is a death penalty conference? Yeah, it was a conference on the death penalty and wrongful conviction at Columbia University. Um, I was really concerned about the criminal justice system. It was something that I was aware of as an issue that felt really important to me. I felt very drawn drawn to it and upset about all of the many, many problems that exist in our criminal justice system. And um, I was going, so I was going to this conference and I asked Eric if he wanted to come and he said yes. And we were in a workshop on the conference on a group of cases called the Death Row 10, which are a group of cases, uh, um, guys that all had confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander named John Burge in Chicago. Um, This was like 10 different death penalty conditions where torture was involved. Yes, and it was a particular police commander who had headed a unit that used torture in their interrogations. He was much later, he was prosecuted, and he passed away a couple of years ago. But there were some— Did he ever go to jail? Yes, he did, but much, much later. At this point, at the time that I of the conference, he had been found to have done that and fired. So it, it was known that this had happened. But these guys, some of whom had no other evidence against them, were still in prison, and some of them on death row. So we heard a lecture on the cases, and we saw some sort of 60-minute-style documentary footage. And it was all very disturbing, but really on an intellectual level. But then the organizers had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison, and they set, they hooked up the cell phone to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was talking to us in the room. And by the end of that phone call, it only lasted a few minutes, but by the end of that phone call, everyone in the room was in tears. And So the power was in his voice, him telling his him story. Him telling his story was a completely different emotional experience. There was no different information that we received. It was just a totally different emotional experience. And Eric sort of looked around the room after the call was cut off, and he was like, yeah, but this is— this is BS, right? Like this is, we're at a death penalty conference. Like everybody who's here is already an activist. They're already on board. They're already wanting to hear the story. This is preaching to the choir. And we literally started writing notes back and forth to each other in the classroom about how do you get around that preaching to the choir problem. And we were both interested in documentary theater as a medium. And we got the idea in that conversation to travel around the country and interview exonerated death row inmates and make a play from their words. And Very cool. What did, how did you know about documentary theater? Like, who had been doing that? I, I, so I was an Anna Devere Smith nerd. She's like the godmother of—well, Emily Mann and Anna Devere Smith are like the godmothers of documentary theater. And Anna Devere Smith, when I was in college, was like one of the only people that I could look at and be like, okay, she is doing the thing. That Like, that's a way that you can do it, right? She's an actor. She's a writer. She's engaged in a very immediate way with things that are happening right now. And her work is contributing towards to justice, right? So what she would do is she would go into a situation like Crown Heights Mm -hmm. and interview many people Mm -hmm. involved in what was, say, 30 years ago, a flashpoint around riots. And somebody, I remember, I don't remember the story exactly anymore, but somebody died. There was, Mm -hmm. and then there was, there were riots in the neighborhood. And she would then 
turn that into a series of sort of— Yeah, she did one-woman shows. She did one-woman shows. Where, where she would portray all of the characters and sort of a series of monologues. That's right. Um, and several of them have been made into—have been filmed also, and you can watch her work. HBO did her latest show. She's extraordinary. And Eric had been working as an actor in New York for a while and had crossed paths just in the theater community with Moises Kaufman, who at that point was still working on creating the Laramie Project. So it wasn't up yet, but Eric knew his had been a reader for auditions for his Oscar Wilde play, I believe, and like was familiar with the work that he was doing with Laramie. So it was sort of a fledgling medium, um, but it has incredible power. There are a lot of things that can be done with that medium when it's done right because of how it engages our sort of wired in emotional response to story and interfaces that with reality, right, with things that are actually happening in the real world to people. I think there's a, an incredible radical potentiality that can be – that that medium can be put towards. So we were both interested in it, and we we literally thought that the play would run for, like, a week at some theater downtown for, like, you know, our friends, right? Like, right. we really did not know how to write a play or how to do any of it. But – we figured it out, and we put one foot in front of the other, and we a lot of synchronicities happened around it, and we worked really, really hard. And the play wound up running for a couple of years off-Broadway and being made into a movie and touring and had a whole big, long life. And um, most importantly to us, wound up affecting policy around wrongful conviction and the death penalty. How did that happen? Well, I think, you know, we hit a— very zeitgeisty moment. Like it was, we started working on the play. With, so this, I mean, this is a good example. When we started working on the play, Eric, who usually titles our work, I'm very bad at titles, said, oh, I have an idea for a title. Why don't we call it The Exonerated? And I was like, that's the stupidest title I've ever heard. That's like an <laughs> obscure legal term and nobody's going to know what that word means. And now we say the word exonerated and everybody knows what it means. All the time. Right? So that was the moment when we started we started work on the play when it was like the concept was not really in the zeitgeist. And so there were several things happening around the issue as we were working on the play that the play actually became part of the national conversation. There are some also some sort of structural things that we built in. We worked with the Center on Wrongful Convictions and the Innocence Project around the play from very, very early on and partnered with organizations, which we usually do with our work. And then, you know, I think we really were very oriented towards having the work be of service, right? We didn't want to make a play that was just like something that people would go in and watch and have a good night at the theater and be entertained or moved, and then it would be over and they'd go back to work the next day. Like, we were actually trying to spark a larger conversation with the piece, so that intention was all over it, and it was also how around how we set up the production, and we were plugged in. One of the things that had happened around the time of that death penalty conference that Eric and I went to, or just before, was that Governor George Ryan of Illinois, who was a pro-death penalty Republican, had gotten very concerned about the rates of wrongful conviction in his state. 
and had declared a moratorium on executions until he could figure out why the state of Illinois was having so many exonerations. Like, I think in a certain number of years, there had been more exonerations than executions, right? Like, they really had a problem. And so he declared a moratorium on executions. He appointed a blue-ribbon bipartisan commission to look at the issue and come back with recommendations of how the system could be fixed so that this wouldn't happen, ideally. And he wanted to have the legislature enact legislation to help prevent wrongful conviction. Well, by fast forward to this, by the time the play was up and running in New York a couple of years later, he was about to leave office. Both candidates running to replace him had said they were going to lift the moratorium and start up executions again. That bipartisan panel had come back with like something like 89 recommendations of things that they could do that could be done to help not eradicate, but reduce the possibility that innocent people could be convicted and sent to death row. The legislation had enacted exactly one of those things. (laughs) The rest of them had not been made into law. And so he was left with a situation where he had all of this information about the depth and breadth of the problem, and nothing was going to be done to fix it, or virtually nothing, and executions were going to start it up again. So He announced that he was considering blanket clemency for everyone on Illinois death row before he left office and that he was going to commute all of – he was thinking about commuting all of their sentences to life in prison without parole so that if there was anybody innocent on death row, at the very least, they would have some time to get appeals through the system. And there was a huge public uproar about this, and it caused a big controversy, and he was really lobbied very hard from both sides of the issue. And people said, you know, you can't treat all of these cases the same because they're all different. So he said, fine, let's – we'll hold hearings on all of the cases. And he had, like, one-day hearings on all of the cases. Well, these cases are enormously complex, and so he came out of those hearings so much more confused. Like, people that looked very clearly innocent, it was maybe questionable after their hearings. And people who looked very clearly guilty, that was questionable after their hearings, right? Like it shed no light on the subject. So it was getting down to the wire, and he really, by all accounts, didn't know what he was going to do. And um, the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University was working closely with Illinois politicians around this issue. And they initiated a request to bring the play to be performed for the governor really? as part of his decision-making process. D- the actors, all they, we had to sort of keep it on the down low because it was on their union night off, but they all really wanted to come from it, from on a Monday night. A private, a private. Yes, we did a command one? performance right. for the governor and fifty exonerated death row inmates and several members of the Illinois State Legislature. Fifty and, exonerated yeah. death row inmates. Yeah. in the room. Yeah. And Richard Dreyfus did it, and Danny Glover, and Mike Farrell, out of, and and some of our regular cast from New York. Wow! The governor was he was visibly moved during the show, and then he stayed late, late, late into the night talking, and actually mostly listening to the exonerees. He really um, engaged very deeply with the exonerees who were in the audience, and he did wind up commuting the sentences of everyone on Illinois death row before he left office. And he has said publicly that the play was a factor in his decision. And we would never claim to take credit for his decision. He was, so many people worked on it, so much more knowledgeable than us, like people who are really full-time in the legal system, right? 
But even to just be able to be part of that conversation was quite extraordinary. I mean, really, if the play had had no other performance ever besides that one, like, that would have been enough. And it really answered the question that I had starting out about, is it possible to actually create tangible social change through the arts? You may have saved lives. We contributed to he well yeah. he he saved lives yeah. with that decision. He's I want to say hundred and set. I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it was one hundred and seventy nine death sentences that he committed, wow. and and he saved lives through that decision. And we were part of the conversation that led to that decision. You've talked about the role of empathy mm-hmm. in the play and in the docu theater. I can't imagine what it's like to be the actor. <laughs> of the play in The Exonerated in front of 50 death row exonerees. Yeah, they must have been terrified. That must have been an extraordinary experience. <laughs> yeah. Did you talk to any of the actors afterwards? Yeah, I mean, that? most of the people who were in the New York cast were good friends of ours. So, yeah, I mean, it was so long ago now that I don't remember talking to them about that particular performance, but I know that it was incredibly intense for all of them. I mean, there were a lot of really incredible sort of performance experiences that happened around the life of that play. There was also another time several of the exonerees whose stories are in the play portrayed themselves in the play at different times during its life, including there was one week in New York where I think we had four of them in the show at the same time. So there's this incredible wedding of the real world with the art. Mm Mm-hmm. That comes through in this in this in this kind of theater. Yeah, I think that's why documentary theater is special, and it has something to do with being in real space yes, with it does. real people. Yes, it does, and not staring at a screen. Yes, yes. Um, I think yes, definitely. <laughs> the emotional immediacy has a lot to do with being in a room together, everybody being in a room together, and that is why we still have theater, right? Even though we have all kinds of fabulous storytelling mediums that are disseminated through screens, but we still make theater even though everybody's broke and nobody gets paid enough and it's really hard and the economics of the whole thing are a mess and tickets cost too much and it's like there are all of these problems and yet here we are, we're still doing it. And I think the reason why we still do it is because nothing can replace the immediacy of being in a room together and and what that does to us emotionally. I mean, I think, you know, there's a whole other conversation to be had about the fact that that's not economically accessible to most people. And I, that's a very real problem. And there are some people in the theater field who are trying to work on that. But I think it is a medium that is very much worth preserving for that reason. And, you know, I think our brains respond to story in a very reliable way. And the empathic connection with a protagonist of a story is something that can be relied on. Like if you if you craft a story well, the audience will hook in. Our our mirror neurons will fire. Like we want to empathize. And that does actually happen in on-screen storytelling also. But it happens in a more mediated way. There is a sort of raw emotional immediacy to actually having that face-to-face experience because that's what we're actually re- – part of the way the brain responds to story is through seeing the face of the person that we're talking to, right? So it still does something if we see somebody's face on a screen, but it does a lot more if we actually see their face in the same room and we can read all of their body language and pick up on all of those signals. Yeah, well, the body language is part of this other kind of thing that happened that gets communicated, which has, it's almost like vibratory. Yeah. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And that's what you lose when you go through a screen. Yeah. In the sense of, you know, we're all connected. Mm-hmm. And that we're sharing the same air, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that there's a kind of group energetic thing that happens that only happens that moment in the theater at that second, and it's gone. Yeah. yeah. And it's never going to be recreated. Yeah. And everybody in the audience could fuck it up by standing up and screaming if they wanted to, and they know it. Sure. Sure. <laughs> right. So we're all in agreement. Right. Yeah, only, it's a yeah. temporary autonomous zone. Exactly. <laughs> I spent quite a bit of time studying theater with a guy named Richard Foreman. Yes, I interned with him very briefly when I first moved to New York City. Oh, you did? I did, yes. I mean, his work is really interesting. I studied it in college, and I studied with somebody who he had been a mentor to in Minneapolis before I came here, and I was really interested in what he was doing. And then— I have to say, I, with all respect to Richard Foreman, but I got into his theater and I was like, oh, this isn't the part of theater that I, that I want to be doing. Like, he's truly a visual artist. He is really right? a yeah. He's a visual sure. artist with bodies, mm-hmm. yeah, right? That's true. And that, and that is fabulous. And I will go see his shows. But I, was, I knew I, don't, I wouldn't have been able to define what I was interested in about theater at that time as being about story and about character and about identification. But that's what I was drawn to in theater. And that's not his thing. No, no not at all. No, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He and I wrote a book together specifically about how dangerous it is to empathize too much with what's happening on stage. Interesting. Because what it does is it locks you in to the status quo way of being in the world. And his, the power of his work had to do with undermining mm-hmm. that empathetic relationship mm-hmm. to give you the freedom to see what else is happening on mm-hmm. the stage. And so you end up kind of like in this Joseph Cornell box that's like moving in real time mm-hmm. that is constantly messing with your perceptual mechanism so that you start to see the world through a totally different frame. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like taking some kind of crazy psychedelic trip, although no psychedelics are involved. Right. Um, and it happens in an hour and maybe that's it. It's like it turns on. It goes very intense for about an hour, and then it's over. And then you sit there just like, what just happened? happened. (laughs) You know, working with him led me to think very critically about what happens when, in art, you just play to those habitual responses Mm -hmm. that allow you as an artist to manipulate the emotions of the audience. Right. Right? From a political perspective— it gets you to where you want to go, right? In uh-huh. a sense of like you want people to feel the sense of tremendous connection and empathy with these people, who, with, with the people on stage, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, 
the question I would have is, if you can get people to act like the governor uh-huh. in a reliable way uh-huh. to really change policy mm-hmm. or to really get active mm-hmm. so that they take action, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard to argue with the, with the importance of being able to do that, mm-hmm. right? But if what it does is make people feel good about themselves at the end of the show so that they feel like, I'm an enlightened liberal person. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> I know how bad the situation is. Sure. Maybe I'll send a check to somebody, right, in order to help stop this. But I, somebody better give me the address now because otherwise tomorrow I'm going to forget, right? Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, it's just one more thing on the checklist, mm-hmm. you know. Then the question is. What's it doing? Absolutely. I mean, look, we could have a whole side conversation about the problem of the quote unquote enlightened liberal, right? And like what to do about that. Like, and so just setting that, you know, and, and I, we're not the first people to talk about Martin Luther King very famously talked about the problem of the white liberal, right? It's been, everybody has been talking about it for a very long time. And it's, it's a unique and specific problem that I think, especially as New Yorkers and the cultural space, we need to be grappling with head on. But to speak to your larger question about empathy and the uses of empathy and how it works, I mean, I think, you know, look, what you're talking about with Foreman's work was really, again, I mean, I think that's another example of work that was quite necessary in a certain cultural moment, right? I mean, and that's—and he was working after Brecht, right, who was looking at disrupting the sort of accepted— ways of seeing our society and getting a sort of distancing effect from it, right? So that we could look at what was happening systemically. Now, what we're dealing with societally is, it's a different (laughs) kettle of fish, can of worms. What's my metaphor? But it's, we have that distancing effect, right? We have the internet and like, social media and like, false socializing. Everybody now feels detached. Yeah, I mean, I think we have that that weird Brechtian alienation is actually part of our everyday life now in our relationship with our phones, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't think that it's any longer so radical to be introducing Brechtian alienation into the mix. I think actually what we need is more human contact, right? So, but to talk about how, how the story process works and empathy a little bit, I mean, it's, So our response to narrative structure, I believe, and neuroscience is now really starting to bear this out, our response to narrative structure is wired into our brains, right? And there have been people doing work outside of the sciences in this for a really long time, like Joseph Campbell, the anthropologist, studied the mythologies of all cultures all over the world, going back to the beginning of recorded history, and found what he calls the monomyth, which is a narrative structure that underlies all the world's stories, right? And there are cultural variations, for sure, and like, for sure, Hollywood has done the sort of male, dumbed-down, boring version in the over-focus on the hero's journey, which, like, the Hollywood version of it can be watered down. But the work that Campbell was doing about making these structural connections really is borne out in a more complex and deeper way, right? So, and, and neuroscience is now actually starting to find that our response to dramatic structure is automatic in our brains. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. How, how do we know that? 
So, well, there are a lot of neuroscientists that have been doing a lot of work on different aspects of how our brains respond to narrative. One of the things that is almost universally accepted in neuroscience now is that when we watch or listen to or even read a story, and this is this work has been mostly done using MRIs, are the the regions of our brain that are associated with whatever the protagonist of the story is experiencing light up as we experience the story. So what are they doing? They're like showing a movie to somebody in mm-hmm. an MRI machine? Yes, or having that having a storyteller tell them a story oh. or having them read a novel, right? And so it's when, a weird place to be reading. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, so when the main character is having a sensory experience, smelling something, say, the olfactory regions in the reader's brain or the listener's brain are lighting up also, right? So we have a mirror neuron network in our brain that is responding to, the, and this is why, you know, you you hear in writing class, they tell you show, don't tell, and talk about using sensory detail. That's not just like a truism from creative writing class. Like actually, when you use sensory detail and show, don't tell, there is a response that is happening in the reader's brain or the watcher's brain, right? That their sensory network is lighting up in a way that makes them feel like they are in the story, right? So there is a wired-in empathic response that we're happens, des- right? We're designed to be We're designed to be empathetic. And there is my—I nerd out on this guy. Someday I'll, I will meet him. I'm obsessed with his research. There's a neuroscientist named Paul Zak who has done studies around social impact narratives, right, and which testing which narratives— have spur people to pro-social action and why. And he doesn't use MRIs. He um, figured out a way to sort of micro-measure oxytocin levels in the blood. And so he does blood measurements of neurotransmitters, right? So he did this series of experiments where he would show the audience a short video narrative that was sort of different versions of a a similar narrative using the same characters, but where the story was structured in different ways, right? And then test, and it was about a child with cancer, right? And then he would test whether people would donate a dollar. He would, like, give them money, and they had the choice to give it away or not at the end of the video, right? Whether they would donate money to a cause associated with the story they had just experienced, right? And what he found— was that the narratives that correlated with pro-social action very distinctly were the ones that spiked blood levels of oxytocin and cortisol. So that's really interesting from a storyteller's perspective because oxytocin is the empathy molecule, right? It's what makes us bond with each other. It's like what makes a baby's head smell good or what makes us feel good if we hug somebody for more than 20 seconds, right? It's like the bonding, connecting hormone, right? And cortisol is a stress hormone, right? So it wasn't just the narratives that triggered the empathic response that triggered pro-social action, it, and it wasn't just the ones that triggered the stress response. It was the ones that triggered both. And so what that is from a storyteller's perspective is that's empathy, empathic identification with the character, and it's narrative tension, 
right? Which is totally makes sense and lines up with the monomyth and Joseph Campbell, right? It's like we identify with the protagonist and then we go on their journey with them as they encounter obstacles and overcome challenges on a quest. And we're hooked in to whether they're going to successfully overcome those challenges and be okay, right? The brain has a wired in response to this structure. We want to go on that ride. And so, you know, that the way I see it, that response can be used for good or for evil, well, I was right? Gonna say, it yeah, can be, I mean, there's I mean, all kinds look, of, I mean, if you're Donald Trump saying that, you know, the enemy is attacking the southern border. And let me tell you, this is why I've really devoted a lot of my resources and energy in the last year or two to helping the left tell a better story. And I'm doing a lot of work in that area because we desperately, desperately need to because the other side knows this. They get it. They know how our brains work around this and they're using it. Right? They're using it to build fear-based narratives and tell fear-based stories that are engaging people's primitive lizard brains right? right. and their fight-or-flight responses and keeping them activated in a stress state. Right, I believe that—and this isn't true across the board for everybody—but that if we tell a story, a different set of stories, and we use, learn to use this response to trigger empathic identification— and story journeying that is not just about fear and is not just about fight or flight and is not just about terror and stress response, that that will feel better to a lot of people. And I mean, you saw that with Obama. Obama was a master storyteller, right? He was absolutely a master of narrative. And his work as a storyteller was actually grounded in the work of a guy named Marshall Gans, who's a who's a grassroots organizer and social change theorist who does a lot of work around story. He was deliberately... Right? Oh, yeah. From our, oh, really? Yeah. No, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. You know Marshall Gans? I don't. Not enough. I know he's his He's a name, community organizer. Know. He's at Harvard now, and he's got a long, long, incredible history and deep background in community organizing. And he's done a lot of work around story in community organizing, right? And again, without, you know, starting in the 60s without the neuroscience, but just seeing this works, right? And he has a model where— he goes from story i'm going to i don't have it in front of me so i'm not i'm it's i believe it's story of me to story of us to story of hope or change right so well, you're going hope from hope and change were good words for Obama. Yes. yes so you're going from the individual that you're you're starting with the empathic identification with the individual protagonist in a story whether that's the individual speaker or whether it's the somebody from the impacted population that you're talking about or whatever right but an individual identification and then you're building that into a shared collective identification and then you're building that into a story of potential for change right right it's, and that's what yeah. obama was doing right. like that's yeah. that he right and but from the perspective of entertainment uh-huh it's hard to get people to turn out for that kind of, there's something about hitting the reptilian freakout button that really gets people to buy tickets. Well, it's faster, right? Yeah. I mean, those circuits in our brain mm -hmm. that and this is why we haven't solved this problem as a species yet, right? That circuitry in our brain, it, the signal travels faster. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So, you actually in order to get to the higher functioning, more highly evolved parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, right, the parts that are involved in empathic identification, you need to slow down or short circuit or somehow work around that really fast identification, right, or that really fast circuitry. Well, that's what meditation is for. Exactly. That's what meditation is for. I think that there's a lot in the arts, and that's what good storytelling is for, because— 
The thing is also that story feels good to us, right? It's not only cortisol and oxytocin that are that are released from engagement with the story. We also have dopamine responses to story, right? Story is pleasurable. So if you get somebody who's a great storyteller, right, or if you get somebody who's a wonderful actor or you work in beautiful language, right, there are ways to engage the brain through beauty. And this is not only for artists. It's for people who are making speeches. It's for candidates. It's for nonprofit leaders, right? Anybody anybody who has a platform who's doing who's trying to do social good can use these tools, right? And but you can engage and slow down and sort of seduce the audience with the pleasurable parts of story, right? But I really believe and I saw this actually in our so in to loop back to the exonerated for a second, um, part of what we did in that play, the play was mostly based on the sort of spine of it was constructed from the interviews that we did with the the exonerees themselves. But we also went back into all of their court transcripts and case files and looked at all of that material and utilized some of it in the play. And so we read the entire court transcripts of some of these cases had like four and five appeals. And, and it was really extraordinary to see. And we also wound up reading some court transcripts of other cases that weren't in the play, et cetera. Non-scientifically, right? We did not do like a social science study on this. But in our non-scientific observation, the people who got exonerated were not just the people, because we know lawyering is a narrative form also, right? The people who got exonerated were not just the people who had a really convincing case for their innocence and whose attorneys convincingly made that case, right? It was the people who had a really convincing case for their innocence whose attorneys convincingly made that case, and whose attorneys also presented a compelling alternate theory of the crime, right? So what that tells me is that faced with a choice between a bad story on one side and no story on the other side, we will go to the bad story. Our brains want a story, right? So I think it's the same thing if you want to, like, reduce it to a binary of right wing and left wing right now in a certain way. like. The right wing is telling a really bad story, but they're telling a story really skillfully. So if we don't tell a story and we're just over here with our data and our social science and say, we understand how reality works. And if you just understand these facts, clearly you'll come over to our side and agree with us because we're right. People are not going to onboard with that, right? If we tell a better story, I believe that enough people will be attracted to the better story because the better story feels better, actually, that it can make actually a real difference. And I think, you know, the other thing is, so in this formulation about how our brains respond to story that I'm talking about, there are two pieces, right? There's the empathic identification, and then there's the sort of narrative tension journey that we go on with the protagonist, right? And I think that, again, unscientifically, one of the things we found when we were creating The Exonerated is that we had done these interviews with people, and they said incredible, extraordinary things to us in addition to having incredible, extraordinary stories, right? The ideas that people were expressing to us, the philosophies, the spiritual lessons they learned from what they had gone through, like in the room with the people we were interviewing, everything was unbelievably compelling, right? When we got those transcripts in a room and had actors start reading them out loud so we could start to hear what was theatrical and what wasn't, the stories were unbelievably compelling, right? The events, the what happened, the philosophizing, it wasn't the same as it had been Not in the room. so much. Right? right? And we figured out, oh, 
once people are on board with these folks, we got to get our ideas out of the way and just let the story do its work, right? So to me— Because the story will carry the ideas. The story carries the ideas. And all of the politics, what this means, is that all of the politics are in the choice of protagonists. All of the politics are in who we are asking the audience to identify with, right? So if we are just turning on the TV and we have a bunch of cop shows where we're supposed to identify with cops over and over and over and over again without thinking about it and the system is portrayed as working just fine and they're all the hero and they're all the good guys, that's going to reify a certain set of ideas, right? That's using those pathways in our brain to do a certain thing. And that, I think, is what Brecht was getting at is, like, that's dangerous, right? Like, if your protagonists are just the people that those in power want you to identify with, then that wiring can be used to reinforce a system, right? But if you get in there and you ask your audiences to identify with people we're not supposed to identify with, it's a whole other story, right? And you can actually, if you choose your protagonists wisely, you can find openings, right? Like with Exonerated, when it came out, we had some people in the press ask us, well, why didn't you interview people who are still on death row, right? Who might have questionable cases, like there's a lot of urgency around those. Why didn't you talk to any of those folks? And we said, absolutely, there's urgency around those cases, and that's really important. And also, we really wanted to make a play that could speak to people who didn't already think like us, right? Right. And who and that was able to reach out to people who think the system works just fine, right? So if we start with people, with protagonists, who already are out, right? The system freed them, right? We can all come into the room on the same page. That provides an opening for people who think very differently from us to identify with those protagonists, so right? So you're thinking about how to be convincing to an audience that doesn't necessarily agree with you from day one. Yeah, or how to find the openings for empathy, right? Like how to find, like, how do we actually connect with each other across ideological divides? Like where where are there cracks where our shared humanity can kind of get through? And how do I, as a storyteller, get in there and open up those cracks and widen them so that they become a channel? And if we do that over and over again, empathy is like a muscle. Like, you work it, it gets stronger, and you can expand your capacity for empathic identification, right? And you can increasingly empathize with people who are more and more different from yourself, right, without erasing that difference. Because I think that's another problem that you run into, right? It's like, oh, we're all human, all lives matter, right? We all know that's a bunch of bunk. But At a certain point, don't you feel like there are a lot of people out there who are just sort of feeling a certain kind of empathy challenge or empathy challenged, like— it's hard. Like I'll tell you, among, yeah. in my in my world, feeling empathy for Donald Trump supporters is very, very hard. Yes, absolutely. Right? And I know that that's coming in the other direction. You know, towards us, that there's an there's a kind of empathy deficit. Yes, almost. there is. There we are operating at an empathy deficit, absolutely. And I think that social media and the internet are causing real problems or reinforcing real problems. And then I think because we also have, you know, our lizard brain and fight flight system also likes tribalism, right? And is also wired for fear of the other, right? And again, all of that can be exploited and needs to be slowed down in order for our prefrontal cortexes to come, or cortices, <laughs> to come online and actually start thinking across across those boundaries, right? Across those in-group, out-group boundaries. I mean, I think, you know, look, 
we were in this this next show that we're doing um, about Upper Big Branch. We were in West Virginia doing the interviews for that project during the primaries, the last presidential primaries. And it was actually, we were there around the time when all three candidates who were remaining were in West Virginia. So it was very politically interesting time. And we had our minds blown and our assumptions upended. We were, you know, we were in the living rooms of coal miners, talking to coal miners and their families in the Coal River Valley in Appalachia, right? Like, we were talking to the people that, like, the snotty New Yorker cultural elitists say, like, oh, they're backwards, right? They're not backwards. They're extraordinary human beings. They are so courageous. Some of the people we were talking to probably were Trump voters. A lot of them like Bernie, too, actually. But <laughs> but some of them were Trump voters. And I will tell you, at least at that time, I mean, I think the picture has changed now that he is actually in office. At that time, they were operating from a place of, like, we're forgotten. We're in major economic pain. Nobody is talking to us. And here's this guy that says he's outside the system and says he cares. And we've been hurt by NAFTA, and he's saying he wants to do something about that. And okay, like nobody else has showed us a compelling story, right? right? right. Nobody else has told us a compelling story, so we'll go with him. Now, the people that are sticking with him now at this point, I think it's a sort of a different story. <laughs> but back then, you know, that was a that's a really good example of, you know, that— sort of famed white working class, right, that, like, it's very easy to sort of write off and be like, oh, well, they don't agree with us about anything and we're on totally different planets. Like, actually, no. Actually, we're on deeply the same planet, <laughs> right? But we need to learn how to speak across our differences. Where do you s see your own connection to empathy as a modality coming from in your life? Huh, that's an awesome question. Um, well, I am definitely an empath, for sure. And um, I'm very much a product of my parents. And when you I, say you're an empath, what do you mean by that exactly? I pick up on other people's energies and emotions. I'm by default a caretaker um, in my close relationships. I have to be aware of that tendency. You've you've gone through a, an experience of of noticing that sometimes you're feeling carrying the feelings of other people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without And then needing to somehow develop clearer boundaries around absolutely. how that happens for you. Absolutely. Right? Starting to really see where your, where your own, what's your own stuff and maybe what stuff that you're not. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I also, I think there's, you know, there's a sort of under discussion of empathy culturally, right? Like I think actually, for example, like collective trauma is a thing right? Collective trauma is something that is, I believe, the engine behind a huge amount of what's happening culturally today, like rep repressed collective trauma. What do you mean but by collective trauma? Like, what is an example? Well, like, for example, this country was founded on two major traumas, right? Genocide and slavery, <laughs> right? And they're both buried, and we don't talk about them. And we're all traumatized by them, not in the same way, right? Because some of us, our ancestors were doing the violence, and some of our ancestors were on the receiving end of the violence. But that violence is—that violent pattern is traumatic for everybody who's involved in it, right? And it's buried. We don't talk about it, right? It's like back in the part of our collective brains where trauma gets stored, 
right? And we know this from we know how PTSD works, right? It gets mm-hmm. tucked away rather than integrated into our narrative memory system, right? I mean, it's all connected. It, and this so, stuff is deep. I mean, yeah, it's that, very deep. And, and it's informing and, how we relate to each other in a day-to-day level. But because we have no to cultural— this day, even if it's hundreds of years later— there's a there's this kind of ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. You can just see directly. It's like the people who are traumatized having children who are carrying the trauma. Yeah. Generation after generation. It's all without here. a a full airing of and healing of that of that energy. Right. And we don't have the vocabulary to even talk in a mainstream way about the fact that we are picking up on each other's energies all of the time and that we're part of a collective brain, right? Or that our, or it's not one brain, it's many brains, but that our brains resonate with each other, right? And our bodies resonate with each other. Like, and, and that we're not these sort of like self-contained little fully boundaried organisms that all exist in our American individualistic pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of way, right? Like, yeah, I've been trying to get, as, as I became aware that in fact, I'm just not this mechanical automaton uh-huh. that exists through the stuff between my ears, which somehow miraculously creates my impression of a world outside myself, which may or may not be verified, uh-huh. that this interconnection with all things that one carries is influencing us in so many different ways. And the the deep wounding that we're all a part of somehow needs to be addressed. And that there's there's this massive cry out for healing. Absolutely. That is somehow now, I feel like, pushing its way to the surface to get attention. Absolutely. And the whole planet is suffering in that way. Absolutely. That this is the, eco- the environmental crisis that we're in is almost a direct expression of that traumatic pain. Absolutely. That we're all experiencing without giving a name to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not to oversimplify or reduce everything to one thing or overly evangelize about story. But I will say that there is a lot of work that's been done and there's a lot of understanding from a lot of different places that one of the major healing modalities for trauma is narrative. It's actually narrativizing it and being able to articulate the story and being able to tell that story to another person and feel that it is received. Right. So I feel like. Because after the story is told and has been received, you can see the difference in the neurochemistry. Like you, you can actually pick it up somehow. I believe there are neurochemical differences. And I know, you know, my dad is um, my dad is a, a trauma psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And he and I know that this is deep in the psychoanalytic literature about trauma and and the understandings of everybody in his field that does work around trauma is that narrative pr- is one of the major major pathways right it's not the only one there's also a great deal of healing that happens through the body but in the verbal realm the kind of communication that is needed in order to heal is story that's fascinating as they actually have like they, they they've been tracking this on a on a physiological level. This, yeah, well, and it's right. and it's what works, mm-hmm. right? Brilliant. Now you say on the in the body also. Mm-hmm. That's through movement or what? What? Is- yeah, I mean, I'm, this is not my field so much. I, like I said, I'm a I'm a product of 
very much of my parents. My dad, like I said, is a trauma psychiatrist and analyst, and my mom is a Feldenkrais practitioner, which is a form of somatic education. So, <laughs> so you know, I've sort of inherited parts of both of their interests. But um, yeah, somatic healing is a huge part of their now finding trauma treatment, because, which and it has to do with the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that goes from the brain through the whole body, right? And so if you hear people talking about us having brain cells in our heart and brain cells in our gut, right, which is a whole realm of conversation now, what they're really talking about is that the vagus nerve goes into all of those places and it ha- it contains neurons, right? So there is consciousness that is through our whole body, right? And trauma gets stored in the body. It gets locked in deeper parts of the brain and not integrated into narrative memory. And it also gets stored and held in our physical patterns, right? So releasing trauma becomes about re-entering the memory into narrative memory and integrating it into narrative memory and unlocking it in the body. So telling your own story Hmm? is part of your therapeutic process. Absolutely. But hearing the story of somebody else that resonates with you, that you empathize with, mm-hmm. does that have a similar effect? I mean, I don't know from a from a sort of psychology or psychoanalytic point of view in, in sort of a treatment modality. I don't know. But I know that we experience it as healing. Right. I know that we experience connection through that, right? And that and that there is something again that we're drawn to. We are drawn to story. We are we uh, we pay $200 for theater tickets if we can afford it so we can sit in a dark room and experience somebody's story in this very immediate kind of way, right? And on a on a sort of less commodified or less formalized level, if we enter into deep conversation with somebody who we're close to and they're willing to actually tell us their story in a vulnerable way, that feels good too, right? It triggers oxytocin release. It bonds us to each other. Do you have a spiritual practice? Hmm. That's such a funny question. So I was raised, yes, I do. I was raised around a lot of spiritual practices. And I grew up in a sort of fabulously, eclectically spiritual household. Like we went to a progressive Episcopal church for a while, and we went to Unitarian church, and I went to Quaker camp, and also my parents had a guru, and I was exposed to meditation through my whole childhood. Your parents had a guru. Yeah. They were with Muktananda. I was at Muktananda's ashram with them when I was really little. I remember meeting him when I was two years old. And so I was raised around meditation and around spiritual practice. And um, I think I was really imbued from a very young age with the understanding of what spirituality is outside of religion and that religions are – all religions are a gateway to it. And I think by having these exposures to various different religious – structures and seeing the commonalities and all of them. Like, I, you know, spirituality was like normal for so me as a kid. Did you meditate as a kid? Um, some, yeah, I did. And then I, <laughs> I kind of started rebelling against it uh-huh. when I was probably in college. Like, I think that I had, because of my exposure to meditation, I sort of developed this, as a teenager in particular, like this idea that like, you're supposed to meditate, like everybody's supposed to meditate. And like a little adolescent part of my brain got involved in rebelling against that that has never totally died. Uh, <laughs> so I don't that's have a, a I don't have a healthy a, impulse probably. Yeah, right. I I, so I don't have a sitting practice, although I meditate 
in and practice mindfulness in small ways throughout the day all the time, like subway, walking down the street, but all that kind of stuff. Um, so and then what does spirituality mean to you? When you say, when I say spiritual practice or spirituality, what is that? I think it means, to me, it means a set of practices that reconnect us with what is beyond our individual egos, right? And what is beyond our individual identifications and narrativizing around those identifications, right? So spiritual practice is whatever practice is reconnecting. So, you know, I don't have – so my brain goes right to, like, sitting meditation practice because that's, like, how I grew up when I get asked that question about do you have a spiritual practice. And I don't have that as a regular thing, but I dance very regularly. Dance is absolutely part of my spiritual practice. Um, I have – I'm lucky to have a sister who's an amazing DJ who throws the best conscious dance party in the entire world. And so i that's my church. No argument. I've been um, there. Yeah, it's great. The get down. Um, that's my church. And I go to five rhythms regularly. And I also dance in my living room. And I practice yoga. I think the body, you know, the body realms are useful for me. Like, And I think they feel more accessible to me as meditation practices than sitting. I live in New York, so it's hard, but I try also have, you know, a big part of my spirituality is my relationship to nature. So being able to be in nature, like is just, and, you know, walking meditation in nature is an important thing to me. And then, you know, and then the tricky piece of it too, is that my my work is also part of my spiritual practice, well, right? That's what like I I'm an get artist. To. Yeah, clearly. And so when you're an artist and when that's your purpose, it is a spiritual practice making that work. It's also complicated because it's my job, right? So, oh, so let's stop. Let's stop for a yeah. second. Okay. So, I mean, on some level, yeah, every artist's work is a sort of a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. The work you're doing is devotional to it is, yeah, an, an understanding of what it is to be a human being mm-hmm. in alignment with something higher, mm-hmm. and. That's something I think that many people would aspire to, but have a hard time finding a way to do in their actual artistic practice hmm. because of all the commercial demands that, that are in the market or because there's still, frankly, there's a bit of a taboo, I think, around a certain hmm. kind of expression mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. There's a, it's, it's marginalized. It's like it's, not cool. It ain't cool necessarily. <laughs> it can be cool. Mm-hmm. If you take enough psychedelics, it can be cool. <laughs> if you're in Burning Man, you're doing it, it could be cool. Right. But, you know, if you take it in the other context, it's not necessarily like the going thing. Right. And and especially like in the theater today where, you know, the lot of theater, frankly, is just not that tuned in politically mm-hmm. to the suffering and the need of healing that mm-hmm. so many people are experiencing. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think in in the theater, it depends what theater spaces you're talking about because interest in my world, which is off-Broadway mostly, right, like so many of the artists that are in there are like, it's so devotional. The work is so devotional. Like that's why they're doing it, right? It's like everything else about it is really hard, right, and weird and the institutions of it are funny and the economics don't work and all of that. So people are there because they actually believe in that sacred act of sitting in a dark room with strangers. 
That's specific to, you know, Broadway's a different animal. I guess I was thinking Broadway. Yeah, Broadway's a different animal. Although I think a lot of the artists that are involved are involved for the same reasons, right? I mean, I think probably more artists are actually devotional in their own relationship to their art than might actually talk about it. Because I do think that making art is it's there's something inherently if not spiritual there's something at least very inherently very deep about it right it takes a lot of courage and i think that's very real for most artists i think that it's really tricky when it's your job though also because capitalism is weird <laughs> and capitalism is violent and distorting and so when you're doing something that is pure, that is a spiritual practice, that is a devotional practice, and you're also trying to make a living from it in a violent capitalist system, and also your ego identifications of, like, wanting to be seen or recognized or have your work received, right, Are those are all at play. And there's a pure aspect to those, too, right? Like, there is a pure desire on the part of the artist to, like, here, I'm making this work as an offering and I just want – it's a, like a natural human impulse to want to feel that it's received, right, by an audience. There's a spirit, totally just spiritual aspect to that, right? But it's mediated by capitalism. Right. Right? Sure. And so that's distorting and weird. So it's a tricky dance, I think, to stay in touch with – like my – when I was younger and deciding to go into the arts as my career, I thought, oh, great – my job will just be my spiritual practice and <laughs> it'll be built in, the discipline will be built in, right? And now after almost a couple decades in the field, it's not quite that simple, right? Like it's, my art is not automatically my spiritual practice. I have to actually sort of sort and organize and, and boundaries are great, like compartmentalize and carve out, okay, now I'm going away to write for three days and like the channel is open or now I'm going in a writing session with my husband and that space is sacred and there are certain parameters around it and there are certain ways we be in that space and agreements, right, so that it doesn't get messy. And then I'm going to get on the phone with our agents or, you know, the producer of our next thing or a publisher or whatever and like deal with the world part of it. And there's some, you know, compartmentalization that has to happen around that. Your writing is almost always collaboration. Mm-hmm. How does that feel as a creator? How do you how do you navigate that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very much my nature. I mean, I also do make work by myself. Um, I I have written three novels. That's right. So, which is very solitary work. That's harder for me. That work, like it's a respite, but it's also sort of heavy lifting. It feels like heavy lifting. I am not one of those sort of naturally solitary writers at all. I'm totally, fully an extrovert. Like, I recharge by being in contact with other humans. And so, for me, if I spend too much time in a room by myself with my art, I go bonkers and I get drained, actually, and I need other people to recharge. So, I wouldn't... I think I might not be a writer or it might not take up... Because I do a lot of different things. I also direct. I also act, right? Um, I also work as a consultant and coach and train people and teach. So... I don't know that so much of the real estate of my career would be taken up by writing if I didn't have a writing partner. But there's a way in which our collaboration makes the process social, 
right? There are solitary pieces of it too. Like we'll trade off drafts and he'll be alone with our script for a while and then I'll be alone with it, et cetera. But like there's always a sort of coming together. There's always a dialogue. There's always a space for dialogue. Um, I would think it's like a really key piece of the relationship at this point since you started writing on your first date. Yeah, basically. I mean, we got the idea for The Exonerated a month after we started dating. So we really – people are like, how do you do that? How do you write with your husband? And I'm like, well, we have actually never really known anything else. Like it was more like we met. We had a brief period of time before we got that idea where we were dating and falling in love in a sort of like typical romantic way. And then it was like, it just kind of dropped into like, oh, we have work to do together. Like, there was also no like standard proposal in our relationship. Like, it was just like, kind of looked at each other and we're like, we're getting married because we have shit to do. So like, we better just set up an infrastructure for that because we have to start making stuff. And so between the two of you, do do you do certain things and he does certain things in the writing? Like you expect him to uh, different parts of the process are different for different projects. And we've been writing together for 17 years, 18 years. So it has evolved over the years. So the documentary work is its own kind of process. Like we have our own methodology for that type of work. It starts with the interviews, which we do together. We have a way that we do those interviews together and the way that we hold that space and even like have different stuff we do energetically in the room with people. And then we bring the transcripts into a room of actors always and hear them out loud. And we edit by ear in the room. Then I'll, we'll go home. I'll enter the changes from that day into the script. We'll come back with new pages the next day to the actors. And so, like, the first phase is always this very hands-on working with actors kind of thing. And then we will refine the script together. We're both pretty hands-on with our documentary stuff all the time. Like, we don't really trade drafts with the script. Like, we're kind of both in it all the time with that. If we're writing, like, a TV pilot or a screenplay or a fictional play, which we're starting to write a couple of now, what usually happens is that we are in a room together during all of the sort of structure building. So we'll do what they call in TV breaking the story, right? Like, we'll work out everything about the story and the characters and structure and everything together until we have an outline, right? I will usually, I'm like the scribe, right? So I'll write up that outline. Then we'll look at it with our artistic director or producer or whoever. We do well with a third always. Like we like to have a strong dramaturg or artistic director or producer on any of our projects from pretty early on most of the time. And then we'll refine that structure together until we get to the point where we can do what we call the bad draft. It's not the first draft yet. It's the bad draft. And we'll decide, it's different for different projects, which one of us is drawn to take that. And the job of the bad draft is just to convert the outline into a script. And it can be a mess, and it can be too long, and it's just like, just get it done and get it on the page. And then we'll usually trade back and forth until it gets refined a certain amount, and then we'll both get our hands in there together again. Does art still have the same power that it once had to really shift culture? I mean, that's such a <laughs> that's such a hard question. I mean, and it requires not to be too annoyingly academic about it, but it like it de- it depends how you define art. It depends how you define culture, right? Like all well, yeah. So like right? making but, stuff that's really going to shift things. Yeah, there was a time. Not that long ago, necessarily, yeah. where 
you know, a play on Broadway could lead to riots. Yes. I don't think, I think it's rare that it can happen in that kind of way, in like a 60s kind of way, right? Because I think we're so bombarded with so much media and so much information all of the time that even if we have a really strong reaction to a piece of media, it's not going to get people like in the streets. You know what I mean? And I also think, you know, our access to media culturally now is so weird, right? Like the arts are very rarefied and very mediated by capitalism and not everybody has access to what we used to think of as like the arts, right, through institutions. And yet everybody has access to all kinds of media all of the time through the internet, right? Including like on Netflix, there's a lot of great art. Right? Like there's great cinema, and there is inc- like some of the most exciting, creatively and artistically exciting, sophisticated storytelling that's out there is being done in serialized episodic television. Right? So that's very accessible to everyone. So, I mean, it's it's a funny set of conditions. What I will, what I do feel comfortable saying that I really do believe is that story can shift culture. And I think that story, and more and more my work is about story more broadly in a way that includes my work as a documentary playwright and includes my work as a filmmaker and includes my work as an actor and includes my work as a TV writer and also includes my work in coaching progressive politicians and nonprofit leaders and activists in how to use story tools to create social change, right? Story is the central mechanism that I work with. And I think that I am I will absolutely stand behind the statement that story can shift culture. And I don't, there's, it can do it within the arts to a certain degree, but the audience is limited within the arts. And so the arts can't be enough on its own. Is there a story that you feel that's emerging now that is a kind of uber story, the big picture story that is the one that's the antidote to the fight or flight Trumpian freakout story? I think it has to be multiple small stories, right? Like I think, you know, in this sort of foundation world where people are talking about these terms, people make are making a distinction between story and narrative, right? And that narratives are like the Uber stories. Narratives are like the larger things that we're all embedded in culturally, right? Like the narrative of American exceptionalism or the narrative, whatever, right? Like that there's a lot of different competing meta-narratives that we're all part of. Whereas story is about a person or a family or a community, right? And narrative is interesting to me, but story is really my jam, right? Because, and I think we can go back to neuroscience for this too, our brains hook in on the individual level first. That empathic process happens, our mirror neurons fire face-to-face with one other human being, right? And we've experimented with this. Our documentary plays usually interweave six or seven stories, right? Like you can weave together multiple narratives and sustain that empathic response, but each individual one has to be well-developed, right? And so I actually think that what, and the brain's capacity to empathize turns off at a certain number, right? Like it still has to be in that face-to-face, person-to-person space in order to 
really do what it does. So what I think actually, rather than one unifying meta narrative that we need, is we need lots and lots and lots of stories. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so sweet. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. What makes a story real? By telling a story, you're actually creating a reality. By learning how to tell your own story with intention, you actually are shaping the reality you're participating in. And it's so remarkable when you can step back and have the experience of recognizing the way that all of us together are forming stories that become effectively the roads that our consciousness is driving down. The world that we live in is shaped by the way we tell ourselves about the world that we live in. And the more you can step back and appreciate that and see that, not to say that nothing is real, but the realness is in the story. It's actually an incredibly empowering thing to hold that and to recognize your own capability to shift into a place where you choose your story and where the stories that you receive participate in the making of your own understanding of yourself in the way you want to be in the world. What Jessica is doing, very deliberately, is finding the touchstone type stories that can open us to the way that others are experiencing the decisions that we make, the political decisions that we make, as a society, in part because we don't understand what it is and who it is that we're touching and expecting by what we do. By bringing those stories to us with such a commitment to exposing the humanity of those that we affect, powerful stuff happens. And I personally really appreciate it. So I want to thank Jessica for being with us on the show today. You want to find out more about what she's doing, Go to jessicacblank.com. That's a C like Caesar between Jessica and blank. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check him out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.